All right. Well, here we are, and we're going to turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, we'll get you a Bible. You're going to want to follow along. Nehemiah chapter 9. Remember, remember this. Uh, we are going through the his, history part of the Old Testament, the historical books of the Old Testament. And uh, we're now in around, uh, the book of Nehemiah started around 445, 444 B.C. And you say to yourself, why are you telling me that? Well, I think you need to know it because, as the Reynolds know, the most important date you should know in the reason I'm saying it is they were discussing it on the way here, is you should know 586 B.C. That's 100 and what, 12 years before? Is that what it is? I don't know. No, 142 years before. Oh, my. Am I bad? But anyway, 142 years before, Babylon came down into the southern part of Israel and took them up to Babylon. That's called the exile. If you hear me say exile, that's what that means. That happened in 586 B.C. And they lived up there, and they got comfortable, even though their temple that was destroyed, and their religious life, and their social life, and their homeland was back in Israel. They lived there for 70 years or so, and then they started to come back. First, in the book of Ezra, under a guy named Zerubbabel, that happened in around 538, 536 B.C., somewhere in there. And that's chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra. And then under Ezra, some more came back, 458, 457 B.C. Don't, don't get glazed over. I'm telling you, if you know the dates, it'll open up these books, and you'll know it way better. So under Ezra, second wave comes back, and that's chapters 7 through 10 of the book of Ezra. And then the third wave of exiles who've come back from Babylon come back under Nehemiah. Now listen, under Ezra, in that book, the temple is rebuilt, but the walls and the gates are not. And that's important because the temple, the place in Jerusalem on a hill called Mount Moriah, or the Temple Mount, is where they worshipped and sacrificed. And it was what all religious life centered around. And in the Holy of Holies, one of the buildings or one of the rooms in the temple resided the Shekinah glory of the Lord at the mercy seat. But, but the reason I'm telling you that is the Bible says now in the New Testament or on this side of the cross under the covenant of grace that there's no longer a need for a temple or a building even though we meet in a building because the Holy Spirit of God lives in you and I if we surrender our lives to Christ. But you must surrender your life to Christ. So there's a lot of people walking around who go to church who don't have the Holy Spirit of God living in them. Could I be any more plain than that? There's a lot of people, you know, out in life, but, but because they've not chosen to lay down their life lay down their life for Christ's an exchange. I'll lay my life down, but I receive your life, Christ. And if you do that, if you decide that you're surrendering, that's a terrible way of saying it, but if you surrender your life to Christ and count on his finished work at the cross and resurrection, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live in your heart. 
And so Ezra is a great book because it shows how that happens in pictures, although it was real history. But then you get to Nehemiah and the walls are built because remember, we're, we're made of three things. Body, that's easy, even I can explain that. Your body, your soul, your mind, your will, and emotions, and your spirit, that place, that inner place that communes with God when you become a Christian. Ezra deals with the spirit. Nehemiah deals with the soul, excuse me, deals with the soul, putting back the guards and defenses in your life that protect you and, and bring prosperity and peace and all that sort of thing. You get it? And so we're looking at that. And now in the first seven chapters of the book of Nehemiah, we've, we've been told about the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem, in Israel. The walls have now been put up. It took 52 days. And a man named Nehemiah, who lived up in Babylon, was allowed to come back to help lead the effort to rebuild the walls. He cared. So the Lord picked him, and he found favor with the Persian king in Babylon to allow him to come back. What a story, God's providence and sovereignty. So that's happened already. And then once the walls were rebuilt, the temple's been rebuilt, the walls have been rebuilt, look, then God turns his attention to naturally what matters the most in the story of Nehemiah, people. People. He turns his attention to people, and what we see in uh, uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 is really beautiful. And here's what we talked about last week. Ezra, this is, by the way, if you're, if you're just keeping track, I'll just kind of mention these things. We're not really going to focus on the leadership of Nehemiah, but it's, it's so in your face right here. <clears throat> it's so in your face how amazing this leader is, Nehemiah, that I have to keep referring to it. And here's the first one. Ezra reads the law. You see, there's a lot of leaders in the world who are jealous of other leaders. They're really kind of small people because they have this sort of inferiority complex. But in the Lord, see, Nehemiah or us or we, we don't care who gets the credit. And here, the leader of the guy who's making this massive effort to build the walls, 52 days to build the walls around Jerusalem, it's a, it's a massive undertaking. I mean, he could have very easily said, well, I'll read the law. I'm the one to put this thing together. But he didn't. He says, no, Ezra, you read the law. You're the spiritual one here. And so Ezra comes, and he reads the law to the people. He does so for days, a week. And we said, didn't we, if there's going to be any revival, and who here, seriously, don't you want revival don't you pray that, you know, back in the 70s and the 60s, you know Time Magazine and Newsweek during the Jesus Movement? Time Magazine, Newsweek, were writing cover, artic, cover story articles about the Jesus Movement, that revival that was happening among the hippies and all that sort of thing. And there have been rev other revivals. And, and we're looking, if, if the Lord tarries, that, that he would pour out his spirit and many would come to know him. And you know, when we pray on Sundays, we pray that there is a spiritual revival up and down the Mon River because that's where we live and we want to impact our culture for the Lord, right? Okay, but if we want to do it, if we just say it, okay, that's one thing. 
But if we look in the Bible, the word, and we see the elements of revival and don't do them, shame on us. And the first thing that must happen in any revival is the faithful preaching and the faithful receiving of the word of God. Why do you think the enemy of our souls, the devil, attacks doctrine, sends in false teachers? Because he's trying to water down the message, right? You see that? What a, what a strategy, but the Lord's victorious. But anyway, he reads the law in the town square with the whole people of God before him, and he, Ezra reads the law, and not only that, but he had faithful men who would then explain the, the law, the word of God, to the people like a home fellowship. Oh, you know, we read the law, but now we need to know and understand it. Why? So that by the Spirit of God, we can go out and do it. Because there's no revival without, listen, a serious receiving of the Word of God. Which, by the way, listen, folks, if you're not reading big chunks of the Word per day, you're missing out. It's not like the pastor's up here saying, I want us all to complete the two-year uh, you know, uh, Bible reading plan so we could say, you know, 50 people. No, we're not, we're, that's nothing to us. What we want is that you read big chunks of the Bible each day so that you begin and start and know to learn who God is. You find God in the scriptures and Jesus in the scriptures. You find him there and it, it's, you know, sown to your heart. It's put on your heart, not just the pastor telling you that it's a, there's a place for that, but you. So, you know, every morning, every evening, the Bible, a journal, you know, you're, you're saying, what? A donkey's talking? What's that all about? You know, write that question down, but just keep going and get the big picture, right? Get the word of God in you. Just know it. You know, one great thing, this is a rabbit trail and I got to go fast. You know, one great thing to do is when you do a new book, you know, one great thing to orient yourself about the book, I don't care if it's John or Nehemiah, try to remember how many chapters are in the book and then try to associate what's in each chapter. Nicodemus, John chapter, Samaritan woman at the well, John chapter, there you go, see? And then you start to do it. The true vine, John chapter there you go. Now you're getting it. You see that? I mean, that's important for you. Just, just what happens in each chapter? Don't have to know it just in that orient and know the dates and know the geography a little bit. And that's why I try to give you that. But anyway, they return to the law because it had been missing for them. The word of God had been missing. If we want revival, we must be serious about the word of God. All of us, not just on Sundays, not just on Wednesdays, but it must be a part of what we take in. The manna was given every day just for that day. Jesus is the manna. Where do we find Jesus? In the word of God. Get your manna every day. Okay, that's my plug. But see, that lends us, that goes, and, and, and by the way, chapter 8 of Nehemiah is a great time of festival. Because why? It's the fe they, they practice the feast or they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. I told you about the feast last week. And you say, well, well, celebration, okay, that's wonderful. Why? Because they were concentrating, they were thinking about, they were remembering. By the way, faith, listen to this. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith, 
a kernel of faith, a part of faith, there's a lot of things you can say faith is, but one very important thing that faith is, is remembering what God does and giving thanks for it. That's faith. And these people go Feast of Tabernacles because God set it up, will do it. God's setting a memorial of all the provision that was in the wilderness. And he knows it's hard to build walls and temples, and it's hard to withstand enemy attacks. But he's telling them, remember, I did it then, I'll do it again, and that's faith. Write in your journals the things that God answers. Write in your journals the things that are puzzling to you, not that you're questioning God in a bad way, but Lord, help me to answer this or show me this and don't, and, and do this and go back a couple weeks later and you're going to go, my goodness, I forgot about this. And he answered it. Praise the Lord. Okay, that's chapter eight. But now watch, because anytime you really take a serious look at the word of God, anytime you do, there's going to be two things happen. You're going to find out who God is, but you're also going to find out who you are. Now listen, the Bible tells you who you are, and the who you are is that you're a sinner. You say, my goodness, I didn't come here for that. But the Bible is clear from stem to stern. I mean, come on, folks. Man rebels in, you know, in the third chapter, and a murder brother on brother happens in the fourth chapter, like that. Sin is devastating, and the whole, the whole bit of the Bible, the whole Bible is this, God's attempt to get men and women, boys and girls, into the family of God. That's the whole Bible. There it is, right there. That's it. I just summarized the whole thing for you. That's the whole thing because sin devastates. But Christ is the provision for our sin. In the Old Testament, what was the provision for our sin? It was sacrifices, not the cross. It was blood sacrifices. And remember, where did the blood sacrifices happen? At the temple. They were away from it for all those years, and now they're reinstituting. Now listen to this. On the 24th day, verse 1, chapter 9, of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth. Remember, we're saying this, aren't we? We would love to have revival in the Mon Valley, okay? Then we all, not just this person or not just that person or that person, we all must have a seriousness about the Word of God. We're taking it in. We're obeying it. Things are happening in our workplaces, in our homes, because we're receiving the Word, and then by the Holy Spirit, we're going out and doing the Word. That must happen. But then another thing must happen. Once you read the Word, you discover who you are. In fact, Alan Redpath said this, how often this discovery of something... I didn't, you couldn't hear that because I spit it out. How often the discovery of something new in the loveliness of the Lord Jesus. You get that? When you discover something new in how lovely Jesus is, it brings with it the discovery of some new corruption in your own heart. God will never plant the seed of his life upon the soil of a hard, unbroken spirit. 
He will only plant that seed where the conviction of his spirit has brought brokenness, where the soil has been watered with the tears of repentance as well as the tears of joy. Alan Redpath. And why did I read you that? Because, see, they've just read the law. They're celebrating, but they're like, whoa, we see who we are. What does the Mosaic law, what does the law, what's its purpose, the New Testament tells us? It tells you, you don't measure up. You've fallen short of God's standard. That's what the law does. Pointing then to a Savior, that's in the New Testament, that's Jesus Christ. But here in the Old Testament, they go, whoa, wait a second. We just read the law, which was a great thing, and we recognize we don't measure up to God's holy standard. So what do they do? They fast. Humility. God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. Here comes this humility. You know what some people will say when you tell them they don't measure up to God's standards? Well, the heck with that then. That could be one. Well, gee, I have no chance then. But see, you're missing the gospel. What God wants when we read the word is a humility that lends itself in fasting. Fasting is just a fancy way of saying concentrating on the spiritual and not the physical. Were they really fasting here? Yes. And they had these burlap-like outfits, sackcloth, and they put dust on their heads. They were in the dust, so to speak. They knew in comparison to the Lord, they were to bow down. You see that? Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of the fathers. You say, wait a minute, separated themselves from all foreigners because God told them, remember, in the Old Testament, the, the Messiah must get through the line, the Jewish line that can't be diluted. Is God a racist? No, 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 no. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's no distinction in Christ Jesus. We're all the same. We know that. But in the Old Testament, there was this purpose to get the Messiah through this line. So he wanted the Israelites to be a separate or to separate themselves. And he knew if they married with some of the other ites, Canaanites, Ammonites, Moabites, all those, what would happen is the influence would come in and they'd start to serve other gods. And you see that with King Solomon, folks. Just go watch it happen. So God was right. So anyway, and they confessed their stood sin and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord and uh, uh, for one-fourth of the day, listen to that, and for another fourth they confessed and worshiped the Lord uh, their God. And according to me, that'd be about 12 hours. Of course, if it was just, you know, the day, it would be six hours. But you get what I'm saying? It was a long time. Here's the principle. What must we need? It happens in every revival. A faithful preaching of the Word of God, a faithful receiving of the Word of God, a humility based on the Word of God, and then, look at this, a confession of sin. You know, when people come into my office and they want counseling and they're in some sort of sin... I'm telling you, 99, now you'll never do it because I'm saying it, 99% of the time, they tell me the sin and there's always a but. But I'm Irish. I'm angry, but I'm Irish. I'm angry, but my mom and dad were angry, so now I'm angry. Or whatever, I'm just making things up. But, but you get what I'm saying? This is a, what the Bible speaks of, of confession of sin, is Lord when I measure what I've done against what you've required, I have failed. 
No ifs, ands, or buts. No justifying the sin. It wasn't because she was a jerk or he was a jerk. No, I sinned. It always is in, it's always in the mix in revival. A confession of sin. Oh, by the way, the Bible in the New Testament tells us if we confess our sins, here's the good news. God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He even says in fellowship, bear your burdens with one another. Confess your sins one to another. By the way, if you're going to do that, don't be a gossip if you're on the receiving end. Just zip your mouth. You don't have to tell people. In the prayer times, don't tell people. If somebody's confessing sin to you, don't tell but see, it's a healthy thing if it is you're confessing and you're, 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 you're sharpening each other. But here's what I want you to know. There's no justification, no excuse. By the way, God already knows, but he wants you to reveal it, to get it out in the open, to say what it is for your own sake. Confession of sin, that's another element of revival. Would you, would we be people who would confess our sins the way God asks us to? Not the way modern Christians do. Yeah, but. No, just I did it and I was wrong. And can you forgive me? And the Lord does forgive you. Now you go, if there's anybody you hurt, you go and ask them for forgiveness. Okay, so they stood, they read, they worshiped. Then these guys, and I'm not going to read them to you, right there, four. And they stand up and bless these guys, with a loud voice to the Lord God's cry out, and the Levites, these guys, say, what? Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. By the way, pivotal books of the Bible. Nehemiah chapter 9, unbelievably amazing prayer. I'm not going to go through it all with you. Read it and study it. Ezra chapter 9, pivotal book, pivotal place, moving prayer. Daniel chapter 9, even I can remember the 9, 999. Nine, nine. <laughs> Amazing prayers. Go study them. And here, the first thing they do is they bless the Lord. You ever thought, what does bless mean? See, the people are confessing their sins. Here's how they do it. They did it in a prayer. As they stood up, they said, we bless the Lord our God forever. We're going to honor you. We're going to think well of you, and we're going to talk well of you. That's what bless means. We're going to honor you, we're going to think well of you, and we're going to talk well of you. That means we're going to bless you, Lord, that way. Forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all. Blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord, sovereign. You've made heaven, heaven of hosts with all the earth. The earth and everything in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them, the host of heaven. And then he talks about Abram, who was changed to Abraham. It's the only other place other than the story Genesis where they tell you about the switch of the name. He became the father of a multitude of nations. That's what Abraham means. And you found his heart faithful, and you made a covenant with him to give the land to him and his people. Exodus, or excuse me, uh, then you pop down to verse 9. You saw the affliction of your fathers in Egypt, and this talks about the Exodus. You showed sign and wonder against Pharaoh. They acted proudly. Uh, you made a name for yourself. and You divided the sea. This is all the things that you know. But listen, listen, folks, in the prayer of faith, they're recounting, just like in your journal, the great things God has done. 
That's all they're doing is they're just recounting the great things God has done in their prayer for repentance and confession. We know who you are. This is who you are. We remember. Look down in verse 13. You came down also on Mount Sinai. What's this? The giving of the Ten Commandments. You did this. You were faithful to do this. You know why it was so faithful to them? Because it showed they needed something else or someone else besides themselves to reach God. Let me say it again. It showed them that they needed somebody else besides themselves in order to reach heaven or God. And that someone is the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what the commandments do. You made known to them your Sabbath and commanded them precepts. You gave them, verse 15, bread, manna. I mean, come on, folks. If you can't get excited about manna, you imagine waking up every morning and breakfast is on the ground and you just scoop it up and have it. And the Lord says, I only want you to take just enough for that day. Don't take it. You know, I'd be like, you know what we would do? We would try to store it. But he said, if you do, it'll stink and rot the next day. The reason was he wants you to get a little bit of manna every day, just like he's the word. He's the bread. Excuse me. He's the bread of life. And he wants you to come to him every day. Okay. The manna. And our fathers acted proudly. They, verse 16. They hardened their necks and didn't, hit, didn't heed your commandment. It's always the way of humans. Oh, man, we're in a tight spot. Lord, help us. Lord comes and helps. And the farther we move away from that help, the easier it is to forget what God has done. And then we go our own way, and God helps us again, and we say, we'll never do it again, right? Okay, and that's what he's recounting right here. 17, they refused to obey, but they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they pointed the leader, returned to their bondage. Here it comes. I want you to see the end of verse 17. I want you to know the end of verse 17. Just mark this in your mind. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. And you go, wow, that's so beautiful. Yeah, it's so beautiful because God said, said to them in Exodus, the Israelite people, that's, that's who they, he was or is. Exodus 34, 5 through 7, which is also quoted, by the way, Bible College in Jonah 4, 2. But that's the point. He knew the scriptures. You see what I'm trying to get at? Okay. So then it goes 18, 20, 21, right in there. He tells about how they were sustained in the wilderness wander, wanderings. And then in 22 and 25, that when they entered the promised land, how amazing that was. And then how in 26 through 31, they'd kind of gotten away from God, but they returned to God again. You see the pattern again. God helped them, and then they got away from the Lord after the help. Get it? And you, so you get to, to 31 there, and then now in 32, an appeal for God's mercy and the, the distress of the present stuff, and you read about that. And then look down in 36, here we are, servants today in the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it, and it yields much increase to the king you have set over us because of our sins. And also they have dominion over our bodies and our, cash, or, and our cattle at their pleasure. And we're in great distress. That's when they were up in the exile. That's what was happening to them. They were enslaved because of the things that they do. And because of all this, we're now making a sure covenant and we're writing it out. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. 
Now they're going, listen, listen to this. So now they're going to seal a covenant with God. Now listen, in the Old Testament, the covenant went like this. You do good stuff according to the law. If you do the law, you'll get blessed. You do bad stuff, you don't meet up to the law, you'll be cursed. Bad things will happen, or you'll be cursed. That's kind of the way the law worked, right? You do good, do well, blessing. Don't follow the Lord, don't measure up, cursing. And now, so, so, so you know, New Testament Christians get a little kind of wobbly when it talks about covenants. But remember, we operate from a covenant. I go like this because I think of blood. We operate from a covenant of grace. It's written in blood. We celebrate it when we celebrate communion. Actually, we celebrate it all the time. And I just want you to see the subtle difference, but an important difference. What we celebrate is a covenant of grace. That covenant has been accomplished on our behalf. We operate out of a position of victory. We're not moving towards victory. We're out of victory because he already paid the price, the covenant of grace. But the Bible does tell us in the New Testament, I love this one, I love this verse, We're to pursue, I think it's Hebrews 12.4. If it's not Hebrews 12.4, it's Hebrews 12.14. I always get it mixed up. But we're to pursue holiness. In the New Testament, in one hand, look, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we receive his perfect righteousness. But the reality is, so, 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 uh, so in a transaction, a spiritual transaction, we are perfectly righteous, but... In reality, in practicality, we still live in earthly bodies and we still sin. And the Bible tells us that we are to pursue holiness. We are holy or righteous, but we're to pursue righteousness. Everybody tracking with me? So in the covenant of grace, we are to pursue holiness, even though we've been given the righteousness of Christ. Everybody following that? If you're not following that, you come see me after. And why am I telling you all of that? Because we are to continue to diligently seek the Lord. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do you believe that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him? How about this one? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, James 4, 8. But we never say the rest of it. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, the scripture says. Pursue holiness. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Pursue holiness, you double-minded. Yes. We operate out of a position of victory. We do, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in spiritual position, have his righteousness, but practically, we still sin, and we're to pursue holiness because that's the greatest and safest place to be, moving towards Christ, becoming more Christ-like. Everybody with me? And the reason I'm telling you that is because here, the people seal the covenant. Look at this. Those who placed their seal on the document were these people. I'm not going to read them to you. All the way down to chapter verse 27. And you get to 28, and now that the covenant was sealed, look what some of the things. 
that they do. We're to pursue holiness. We're operating under a different covenant than they did, and yet we still have to cooperate with God. We can't just say a prayer on the back of a magazine, go home and eat bonbons till we puke. Just watch life go by. No, Paul said, a Holy Spirit-filled Paul, what did he do? He gave up all his goods to travel around the world, all his material possessions, all his everything for the Lord, just to know the Lord. He travels around the world, and he says, oh, man, I, I love it. Don't you love it? I was poured out like a drink offering. It gives me that image. You know, you ever played a sport or ran or, I don't know, worked all day out in the hot sun, and you just gave it your all. And at the end of the game or at the end of the run or at the end of the workout or at the end of the day of the job or at the end of watching all those kids maybe one day, you just were like, Whew, I couldn't go another minute. That's what Paul did at the end of his life. So he was working, but not for salvation. He was working out of salvation under the Holy Spirit. And now that we are to pursue holiness, I just showed it to you. Now that we're to pursue holiness, look at what they did and see the New Testament principle. Watch this. Now the rest of the people, verse 28, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, they were the ones who carried the water and the wood. And all those who had separated themselves from the people of his land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, and everyone who had knowledge and understanding. They separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. They were separate from the world. Remember, we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And here we see they separate from the world system of thinking. The world system of thinking in relationships is this. Just go watch. Go watch. Man, wow. He looks amazing. Got a great job. He has a Tesla. I want to date that dude. Or, man, that girl is so pretty. And you know what she could do for my career? And, man, I want to date her. That's what the world says. I'm just picking one thing. The Bible tells us don't love the world or anything in the world. No, 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 no. Yes, you're to have a, a romantic spark, of course, but you're to connect emotionally and all, and you're to connect spiritually and those things, and we could talk about that. But here, what the Bible tells us, the principle is this. Don't yoke up with an unbeliever. It's really simple. And yet it's really hard for a lot of people to do, even in the Christian world. What they say is, I know they haven't been to church in 75 years, but I'm sure we get along so great, and I'm sure if they just come to church with me a couple times, everything will be fine because they love me so much. That's how it works, folks. And the Bible says here in the covenant because they read the word of God, they'd humbled themselves, they'd made a covenant with God, they were to separate themselves from the other people and yoke up with believing people. That's the way we're supposed to be. That's a principle for us. If you're young and you're dating, you better find the one, or if you're old and you're dating, by the way, <laughs> you better find the one who is a Christian. It's a no-brainer. It's no negotiation. Your, your life will be wrecked, probably, not always, but spiritually you won't be able to go. And so, listen, hey, by the way, time out. 
if you've married an unbeliever, the Bible covers that too. Stay there and just be a witness to them and show them the sweet love of Jesus, serving and loving and being truthful and graceful. So uh, there's, there's that. But the, 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 the principle is don't yoke up. Really, it's don't make any permanent relationship with an unbeliever. You get that? That's what yoking is. Okay, next thing. And they joined with their brother, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God. What is the formula for revival, if there's such a thing as a formula? Well, we've been seeing it, but there's another one, separate from the world. The church should not look like the world. It just shouldn't. If you're looking for a church to go to that you can blend in with the world, run. Get out. Next thing is, but there was unity among the brethren. They walked in God's law. If there was hurts and struggles, listen, folks, we need this here. If somebody slights you in here, it's going to happen. Go talk to them. Don't go around and talk about it. Just go right to them. It's just easy. Hey, I thought you meant this. Did you mean that? Oh, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. Hey, can we... There's unity in the church. Okay, here's another thing. Again, they're dedicated to God's word. You see that. And we wouldn't give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for their sons. That's 30. If the peoples of the lands brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we wouldn't buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forego the seventh year produce and the exacting of every day. You said, come on, what's all this about? Remember, Remember this verse in the New Testament? Hebrews 4.10. He that enters into rest has ceased from his own work, even as God did from his. Anytime that the Old Testament's talking about a Sabbath day, I didn't know this for a long time. Even after I became a Christian, I didn't know this. We don't do church on the Sabbath, folks. The Sabbath is Saturday. We do the church on the first day of the week, but there's this principle that you're to rest and devote a day to the Lord because G- or God ceased from his work on the seventh day and also he makes it a Exodus chapter 20, 10 commandment to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Listen, is it a great principle to rest and relax one day of the week? Yes, it is. And, but, but not just relax, you know, think about the Lord and all that sort of thing. But here, here's the point of, of really what New Testament people should remember, we're always to operate out of a position of rest. Always. Monday at 5.30 in the morning, rest. Uh, Monday at 5.30 at night, we're operating out of a position of rest. Say, wait a minute. What do you mean? Listen, did you read what I just read to you? Hebrews 4.10, he that enters into rest, Jesus is our rest, Matthew tells us. Come to me. You yoke up with me, and I'll give you real rest for your soul. Why? Because your sins will be forgiven, and I'll give you the Holy Spirit. But he that enters into rest has ceased from his own work. Listen, folks. You know it is finished. You're not trying to reach God on your own efforts anymore, ever. It takes all the pressure off. When you sin, you go, you know, and you're thinking you have to do it in your own efforts, what happens? You're fractured. 
Because you're, did I make, am I still a Christian or not? No, 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 no. We're operating out of victory. We still sin sometimes. We're not working in our own efforts. We're to walk according to the Spirit, you see. So here, what, what, is, the, what is one of the elements of revival? It's a people who are so secure. But listen, in Jesus, that when you make a sin, when you do a sin, when you fall below the standard, you know what you do? You just own it. Agree with your adversary quickly. If the adversary is in your ear saying, you shouldn't go to church, you're not even worthy to go to church, you say, you know what, adversary, you're right. I'm not worthy, but Jesus paid it all. I can go to church now. It takes all the pressure off. You see? Okay, so rest. Okay, how about this? In 32 to 34, also we made ordinance for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering. You can read through this to 34. This is talking about that temple tax that they were to give. And, you know, under the law, right? Did I give enough? Did I not give enough? But you know this scripture in 1 Peter 1.18. We're not redeemed with corruptible things. You could put 17 million bucks in the box back there. And if you do it for the wrong reasons or outside of faith, it means nothing. <laughs> it means nothing because we're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot or blemish or spot. We're not working to get to God. We've been redeemed by the blood. And yet, look at this, in 35 and 37. You can read the whole thing. It's talking about all the first fruits of the Bible. First fruits. What are first fruits? First fruits, you can see in Exodus 13, is you're giving back in the Old Testament a tenth or the firsts of something, like your firstborn male child was to be given to the Lord. Or your grains or your crops, take a tenth of it and give that first to the Lord. And, and that's a great principle. In the New Testament, we should be giving people. By, Paul talks about our tithing. We should be people who tithe. Uh, you can go into 1 Corinthians 16. You can read about that. And we should be people who plan out our tithes, pray about our tithes, and consistently give tithes. But listen... We know that we're giving not to be redeemed. <laughs> we're giving out of a heart that has been redeemed. That's a joyful giver. We're a joyful giver. Listen, so people come up to me and say, should I give 10%? Should I give 11%? Is it gross? Is it net? Here's the thing I think you should remember. Really, God owns all of it, 100% of whatever you have. He owns 100% of it. Your real question ought to be, how much do I take out of that? Did you see what I mean? He owns all of it, 100% of what we do, what we are, our intellect, our making money ability. So how much am I going to put in there is really, he owns 100% of it already. It's a different way of thinking, right? We should be cheerful givers, only though because we have a redeemed heart. Okay, what else do we see in here? Well, 
I'll, I'll leave it at that. You can read the rest of chapter 10. Now, why am I showing you this? Because these are all elements of revival. Seriously, seriously. If you have trouble giving, you know what I'm saying? Whatever it is, money or time or resource or your firsts unto the Lord, something's going on. You understand that? Something spiritually is going on there, folks. You're either giving out of obligation or duty because you think maybe that's your way to heaven, or uh, you know maybe there's something else in your life. Come and let's pray about it, talk about it, not because we want your money. <laughs> God has enough money. He doesn't need my money. You know what he does when that consistent giving? He's just continually just making sure where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, he, he's just seeing and, and recognizing and loving the fact that people are just going back there by themselves, popping into that box or wherever. I'm just using the box because I can see it right there. Look at this. So the leaders of the people in verse 12 or chapter 11 dwell at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lot to bring one of the ten to dwell in Jerusalem. What's happening here? What's happening here? Well, what's happening is is that Nehemiah now is repopulating the city of Jerusalem. Because there's not a lot of people living in the city. They're living around the city. Now, let's think about some of the reasons why they wouldn't be living in the city. One reason is, is because they know the city's been attacked a lot. <laughs> right? They're more in danger inside or in that city because it's a city. And they know there's enemies that come against the city, right? Don't want to live there, maybe. Here's a second reason. You probably didn't catch it when you were reading it. Maybe I didn't even read the whole thing. It's a holy city. <laughs> that's, man, that's American church. I want to be around the things of God, but I don't want to be in fully. So I'll just kind of stay out here. I'll watch. I'll watch the service. I'll highlight my Bible. I might even say amen once in a while. But to fully give my life to the Lord, I don't know, because I want to do what I want to do. I want to live with my girlfriend. I want to live with my boyfriend. I want to take from the IRS. I want to tell my white lies when I can tell my white lies, and I don't want to be under any conviction. I'll just stay out here. I want to live for material things, but kind of give to the Lord. You know? Sounds like America, right? Well, here says they cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem. Folks, you know this, right? We're looking, in Hebrews it tells us, for the heavenly city. That's what Christians do. We look for the heavenly city. Our hope is in heaven. Are you catching that? Our hope is in heaven. Corinthians tells us that. Our hope is in heaven. We are looking for the heavenly city. That's where we want to go. When we die here physically... It's going to be the greatest day of our lives in Christ. It's going to be the worst day of our lives outside of Christ. But in, in Christ, it's going, you, can you believe we're saying this? It's going to be the greatest day of our lives in Christ. It'll be the worst day of somebody's life outside of Christ. We'll be with the Lord, and it's going to be amazing. We're looking for the heavenly city. So there's another reason 
right? This shows us for revival that we want to partake in the heavenly city because I want you to see something. It's so amazing. They cast the lots. Say there were 10 of us here. Cast the lots. And the, the, the word here means, or the, the verse 2 here means, they either ask the person who the lot fell to, like maybe it fell to Sarah. Then they go to Sarah and say, now do you want to go in or do you not want to go in? They went willingly. Or it means they cast lot, and then to populate the whole place, they ask some others to go in willingly. Whatever it means, look at this, in order to get into the city, it had to be willing. Uh-oh, my Calvinist friends are really nervous here. Does God choose us? Oh yeah, God chose us before the foundation of the world. The Bible's clear. Do we then have to choose him? Uh-huh. And it ain't mutually exclusive. I think they go together. And here, look, they willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Isn't that touching? Don't you want to offer yourself back to the Lord for all that he's done? Well, I hope you do, because Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that's your reasonable service. That's my reasonable service. They willingly did it. Then the heads of the province who dwelt in, uh, in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah, everyone dwelt in his own possession, etc. And then the children of Judah, they count. And then the, look down in verse 7. The sons of Benjamin, Judah and Benjamin are right near Jerusalem, the, the, the territory. Judah's here, Benjamin's just right above it. That's why they're saying that. They were in the territory of Jerusalem. Then, then look in chapter 10. Then the priests... And then in 12, their brethren who did the work of the house and the heads of the father's houses and the mighty men, verse 14, of valor. Also the Levites. And some of those were heads of, uh, had oversight of the business outside of the house of God. They took care of the grounds and other things that didn't concern the house of God. Look, they're including people. It's organized. Then there was singing. You can look down here. Asaph, isn't that familiar? You should be familiar with Asaph. Asaph is one of the ones who did the Psalms, or sang the Psalms, right? You know him. He's mentioned in uh, Psalms a lot. What I'm saying is, in the heavenly city, folks, there's going to be a lot of singing. Oh, by the way, I really believe it. There's a lot of praise and worship involved in revival. Then there were gatekeepers. You see that in 19. And the rest of Israel, the priests and Levites, were all in the cities of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the Nephanim dwelt in Ophel. Ophel, you're, you're going to go with us. I'm gonna, we're going to show you, Lord willing, if, if the Lord doesn't come back, we're going to show you where Ophel is. It's right down from the southern steps. We'll do a Bible study right on the southern steps of the temple, going right down into the city of David. You'll know where Ophel is. And Zia and Gisper were over the Nivenet. Also, the overseer of the Levites. There were lots of different people. Look at the last one. There's a king's deputy and in all matters concerning the people. Why did I read you all of that? Because you know in uh, Ephesians 4, right? In Ephesians 4, that uh, it says this. From whom the whole body, verse 16, joined and knit together by whatever joints, every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We ought to have 100% of the people who attend this church, we ought to have 100% of the people serving somewhere. They did. 
They just had all the people doing the work. And then you go down to 44, or excuse me, and then you go down to, <laughs> I skipped ahead to 12. And then there was people, 25 through 36 lists uh, a number of cities outside of Judah and Benjamin. Okay? Just some more people that are listed there. Now look at this. Now he looks back. Look at this. There are priests and the Levites who came up with the Zerubbabel. And he names all these people. And they were heads of the priests. And there were Levites, etc. In verse 8. And all these people. And then he just keeps looking back. And he keeps looking back. And he keeps talking about the people who came with, the Zerub, with Zerubbabel. I, that's why I told you at the beginning. Zerubbabel was earlier. And look down in verse 24. And the heads of the Levites were these people with their brothers across from them to praise and give thanks, group alternating with group, according to the command of David, the man of God. There's just all these practical workers that all have been part of the temple and part of service. I'm, I'm trying to encourage you in, in, I'm trying to encourage each one of you, every one of you. What is it you like to do or God's given you to do? Okay, come and ask to do it. <laughs> you like to drive? Good. You can be the deliverer at the lunch program at noon. Uh, do you like to cook? Well, here soon. You'll be able to do it every, any Wednesday night, third Wednesday of the month. Or or Whatever. You like to sing? Man, we had some beautiful singing today and been playing. And we ought to be people of praise. And they, they did that. And now, verse 27, look at this. Now the wall is going to be dedicated at Jerusalem. They made the wall, so they sought out the Levites to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing, with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. You, you know, folks... I'm going to get in trouble for this. I always do when I say it. We ought to be the most joyful people in the world. You know what Nietzsche said? He was a German philosopher who didn't really believe in Christ, but he said this, if Christians expect me to believe in their Redeemer, they need to look a lot more like they're redeemed. Nehemiah, we heard so earlier, the joy of the Lord is our strength. I'm not saying being happy. My dog dies, I'm not jumping up and down, clicking my heels, saying, oh, I'm so happy my dog died. No, 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 no. We have this solid understanding of who God is, who Christ is, the per person and work of the Holy Spirit. We recognize we're sinners. We understand he's paid it all. We're operating out of a position of rest, which means that we belong, we're accepted, and we have the resource to live this life, how else could we live? We ought to be people with joy who give thanksgiving and singing. We dedicate this wall because we, what? You don't say because we were such great wall builders. You say because the Lord gave me the ability. He took a man from up there. He brought him down here. He started these whole things. He brought in the prophets when we stalled. And it was all because of God. And now we're safe and sound. And the temple's rebuilt. And we can reestablish. Yes, we're happy. And I'll bet you there was a lot of heartache along the way. But they were joyful. And they could sing about it. 
Look down in verse 30. During this dedication, the priests and Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates and the wall. We must understand that we've been cleansed by the blood. We don't operate out of positions of guilt anymore. If something bad happened to you or if you did something bad, listen to this. By the blood of Jesus Christ, that can be washed away. And you get a new life and move on. That means joy. Who doesn't like a clean slate? Come on, folks. So there they do. So so they got that. So they brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall. I'm trying to get you to this. I know you're you're ready to fade out, but you can't fade out here. Because here's the punchline. So I bought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large Thanksgiving choirs. Hey, somebody told us one time when we had the Christian choir, Calvary chapels don't do that. I laughed. Nehemiah did it. The people of God did it. They had Thanksgiving choirs. And one went to the right hand on the wall toward the refuge gate. Are you catching what's happening here? One goes one way, and the leader of that group is Ezra. Look down in verse 36. And Ezra the scribe went before them. But in verse 37, by the fountain gate in front of them, they went up the stairs of the city of David on the stairway of the wall beyond the house of David as far as the water gate eastward. But then, listen, 38, the other Thanksgiving choir went the opposite way. That's what you need to know. So you got walls around a city with a temple in the middle of it. Actually, it's not in the middle. It was kind of up to the right. But whatever, there's walls all around it. And one choir went one way. Isn't that funny? Led by Ezra. The other choir went the other way, led by Nehemiah. You're fading out, but you're not going to want to fade out when you hear this. The other, you see, and by the way, Ezra went in front. And this is important. Ezra led them from the front. Nehemiah led them from the rear. And I was behind them with half the people, he says, on the wall, going past the Tower of Ovens as far as the broad wall. By the way, you can still see the broad wall today. You go to Israel. We missed it when we went, but we're not going to miss it this time. You can see the broad wall. It's still there. It means wide wall. It's just a wide wall that another king had put up a long time before that uh, enclosed them. And above the gate of Ephraim. Anyway, they meet. You catching that? You say, wait a minute. Why did one go in front and one go behind? What's Ezra mean? Helper. What's Nehemiah mean? Comforter. Who are they a picture of? Holy Spirit. It's just like the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Sometimes you just need to be led. You just need to have him go before you, show you the way, and so you can march in thanksgiving towards what God has for you, and he opens up the doors, and he closes the doors, and he leads you into truth, and he leads you into righteousness, and he just leads the way. But then sometimes you're so low and broken, you don't need that. You need someone to come behind and just comfort you. The people of God, marching around the walls, picture of the Holy Spirit. He's both our help and our comfort. 
And here we see it in an amazing way. So the, verse 40, the two Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God and half of the rulers with uh, me. And the priests, these priests, you can read them, the singers sang loudly. And also that day they offered great sacrifices and, great, and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice, re, rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. Listen, folks. How can we say the joy of the Lord is our strength? How now here in the New Testament can, we, can the Lord ask us to rejoice in the Lord always? And again, I say rejoice. You say, wait a minute, I don't know about that. Always? Yeah, always. Listen, in order for there to be great rejoicing, there must be great sacrifice. I want you to think about that. Jesus Christ said, or Jesus Christ, or the scriptures say of Jesus Christ, for the joy that was set before him. There was great joy, but it had cost his life. We read this week in Luke, if you want to be exalted, take the low place. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, listen, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, be a slave. Be a slave. Be a servant. You know how you can always tell whether you're not being a servant? It's when somebody treats you like a slave or a servant and you react in a bad way. You know you're not acting, you're not a servant of the Lord. Anybody ever have that happen to them? Yeah. Folks, I'll close here. I went a long time, I know. But there's so many elements to revival. The, the, the element is, first and foremost, just being under the shadow of God by the person and work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. You understand that? You find Jesus in his word. You confess your sins. You call them what they are. You don't hide things from the Lord. Don't hide them. You're a people of praise and joy. You, you depend upon the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you. And when you're moving through this word world and you are being a slave and you are laying your life down and you feel hurt and you feel bruised and you feel beat up, you really rely upon him, the Holy Spirit, to come behind and, and comfort you. And like our master... Our Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life. If you want great joy, the Bible calls us the great sacrifice to lay ours down too. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much, and thank you for this word. And we just ask, Lord, that you would do a mighty work <clears throat> in our hearts as... Um, this is a powerful uh, piece of scripture here, powerful time. And Lord, help me, because how am I going to only teach on one chapter next week? So I need help there. But also, Lord, as we go out, we are, we're praying together for real revival. But here's what I don't think we understand. For the people who are in this room, this is where revival starts. It's not somewhere out there. It's in here would we be a people who would really obey, would really pursue holiness, would really count on the Spirit of God no matter what? 
would we be people who would lay down our lives and sacrifice so that there would be great joy in eternity? And here too, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.